Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time we've got disturbing new figures uncovered by Byline Times, revealing that more than a thousand people a year are being raped or sexually assaulted on NHS premises. We'll be hearing from Sean Norris, the journalist who broke the story at bylinetimes.com, and Daisy Cooper, the Lib Dems health spokesperson, who is calling for an urgent response to what she describes as horrifying statistics. Before that, though, just let me tell you about the Byline Supplement, now available at Substack, which has exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else, including episodes of this podcast. Just head over, when you finish listening to this, to bylinesupplement.com to hear my conversation with the author and academic Jason Stanley discussing modern-day fascism on both sides of the Atlantic. That's over at bylinesupplement.com. Welcome then, Sean. Welcome, Daisy. Sean, just tell me what first alerted you to the story. So, I mean, as you know, Adrian, reporting on issues of sexual violence and men's violence against women and girls is really important to me. And back in March, me and my colleague, Sasha Lavin, who I worked on this story with, exposed the extent of third party sexual harassment against NHS staff across England and Wales. So it just is a kind of issue that we've been interested in in a long time, for a long time, this issue around places that are meant to be safe for women or meant to be safe for patients and staff, but where sexual harassment, assault and rape are taking place. Then over the summer, there was a case of a hospital worker who was jailed for voyeurism, basically, and for looking up women's hospital gowns when they were unconscious. And so, again, this kind of prompted us to think, OK, well, this is one really serious case How widespread is this? How safe are women and girls when they go into hospital? So what Sasha and I did was we sent out freedom of information requests to police forces in England and Wales, asking for reports of rape and sexual assault when hospital or ward or these keywords were mentioned in the report. And to be honest, I thought it would be in the hundreds. I mean, normally I'm I'm quite well versed on issues of violence against women. It's very rare that things surprise me. But I just was absolutely flabbergasted that the results came back and we found 4,109 incidents on NHS premises. And that included rapes and sexual assaults, which took place in hospital wards. So the place where women are meant to be safe, the place where patients are meant to be safe, because some of these victims will have been men and boys as well, is sometimes a place of danger. And I'm, you know, I'm really proud that we managed to get this data out there and really grateful to MPs like Daisy and also to Wes Streeting, who commented on our story, who are both fighting to get this issue more coverage and more volume. Yeah, Wes Streeting, the Labour MP, the Shadow Health and Social Care Secretary. And when I said at the top then that there are more than a thousand sexual assaults and rapes a year, I'm probably slightly underestimating it because you've captured data from less than four years. You started in January 2019, and the figures come up to September 2022. So that's under four years, but there were more than 4,000 of these incidents in that time period. Absolutely. And of course, the data that we have is based on police reports. We know that women and girls overwhelmingly do not report rape and sexual assaults to the police. So there is likely many, many more incidents that we haven't been able to capture, but this is our best way of getting data at this point. And I think there was a lot of disturbing issues when the data was given back to us. Some of the police forces gave us more 
detail about the assaults and about charges and summons and things like that. But I think the statistic that I will take with me my whole life, I think, is the number of rape victims who couldn't identify their attacker after they'd been raped on a hospital ward. And I just find that really, the implications of what that means are very, very distressing and disturbing. And Daisy, this is a subject that you've had a sadly in a way because it reflects a pretty horrifying reality but something that you've had a a long-running concern about it certainly is i've actually had two constituency cases one of a patient who experienced sexual misconduct by a medical professional and the other who was a medical professional uh, themselves and had experienced sexual misconduct by a fellow uh, medical professional so one was patient professional and one was professional to professional and in both cases it was truly horrifying to find out a number of things. Firstly, there isn't any tailored support available at all to those in both, in my case, both uh, female constituents who have had raised these concerns. In one particular case, the patient had raised this with the NHS through her GP and the GP made the complaint to the hospital. And this process was really alarming because what happened was this patient spoke to their GP, the GP who made the complaint on her behalf to the hospital trust, and it therefore became an HR matter between the employer and the employee. And the alleged victim, my constituent, became relegated to being called a third-party witness. And what that meant was, whilst she was able to give some evidence, she wasn't actually told the outcome of that particular HR procedure. And therefore, she had no justice and no closure at all and at no point was she given any indication of what other options were available to her. So just so I understand that then this person was the victim but was then described as a third party in the internal disciplinary investigation. Correct and that meant that they while she was able to give evidence she wasn't told the outcome because she wasn't a main party to the complaint but I mean that's bad enough I mean it's re- that in itself is really shocking but that it sounds incredible gets- I mean you must have in- investigated that and asked uh, how come I mean how can you be the victim or the person who says they're a victim and then be described as a third party and not be informed about the outcome of the investigation into your allegation? Precisely. But this whole situation gets so much worse because in this particular case, this individual also said they were made to feel as though they were the ones somehow at fault. You know, and we hear this time and time again in cases of violence against uh, women and girls, that they're the ones to made to feel guilty. So, you know, ask whether there was anything that they had done as a patient in a vulnerable setting to perhaps encourage a medical professional to perpetrate these acts. But then what happened was that the the GMC, the General Medical Council, which regulates medical professionals, contacted my constituent, but she wasn't well enough. She was undergoing medical, long-term medical treatment for a condition, which meant that she wasn't medically or mentally fit to make that complaint. And when she felt able to make that complaint, she was then prevented by doing so because there is a five-year rule that's in place. So the GMC has something called the five-year rule. And if you're outside of that five-year rule, you can't actually bring your complaint against a medical professional um, unless there are exceptional circumstances. So I've written to the GMC and asked them to explain to me what those exceptional circumstances are. And they have refused to provide the legal advice that they sought on this particular case. So we now can't find out why or how it might be possible to make the case that sexual misconduct should constitute an exceptional circumstance. To make matters worse, there had been a consultation on removing this 
five-year rule. But that consultation took place last year in 2021. And we are now more than 12 months on and the government still hadn't responded to it. And just to finish off, you know, during this time, I have tabled a number of written questions and done a lot of research on this, as has my constituent who is affected. And what we have discovered is really, truly shocking. Not only is there no tailored support available to victims of sexual misconduct, assault, or rape in terms of um, giving them advice on what avenues are available to them. Some of them are restricted by this five-year rule. But we also know that there's been three inquiries into sexual misconduct within NHS settings. And there hasn't been any reporting on that for five or six years in terms of what progress has been made. And the, and the final thing, which speaks to the point that Sean made about where she got her data from, you know, Sean and her colleagues got this data from the police, which means that these are cases that have been reported to the police, and there could well be many, many more. And as far as I can tell, from looking at all of the reports of NHS hospital trusts and how they report on complaints, there is no systematic collection of data from hospitals that relates to sexual misconduct or abuse within health service settings. And without that data, how on earth can the public, how on earth can MPs hold hospital trusts to account? I think this is a major, major failure and all credits to Byline for shining a light on it. And what's the problem here, do you think, then, Daisy? Is it a lack of willingness by the government to tackle this issue? Is it a form of institutional inertia within the NHS? Well, at this point in time, I would probably say it's a a plague on all their houses. I mean, clearly the government itself hasn't actually responded to get rid of the five-year rule. So the government needs to be doing more. The Health and Social Care Select Committee, for example, hasn't taken evidence from the GMC for several years, as far as I can tell from public reports. And the NHS itself should be doing more to make sure that there is consistent reporting across all the hospital trusts so that we can see the scale of this particular problem. I've been sort of banging the drum on this issue. I I wrote to government ministers in May of this year. Of course, we've had three different health secretaries in that time, and I've had to chase my letter several times over for several months to get a response. Now I'm seeking ways to try and raise it in Parliament and get a debate on the issue. But what is utterly clear is the scale of this problem, as Sean has said, is way bigger than anything that any of us had realised. And it now does need a very urgent and comprehensive response, both from the government and I think from NHS bodies as well. Sean, we know that the conviction rate for people who bring charges of rape or sexual assault is pitifully low Mm. in general terms. What did you find out with regard to these rapes and sexual assaults at hospitals? So of the reported allegations that police forces in England and Wales recorded, 5.21% resulted in a charge or summons. So, you know, again, that is very, very low. It's not as low as the national um, for outside of hospital settings. But again, it, it does speak to this issue about women's confidence in reporting to the police. One of the things that was raised when we spoke to a charity worker who supports survivors and victims of sexual violence was that in these specific cases, a lot of women are really worried that they won't be believed because they are in what should be a safe space. There's obviously a power dynamic between a doctor and a patient. And if a doctor chooses to exploit that, that woman can feel or the victim can feel that it must have been because that was part of the medical procedure or it must have been because that was what he needed to do. And how would anyone believe me if I said it was a doctor that hurt me because doctors are in a position of care and they ha- they sign an oath to say that they won't, will do no harm. 
So I think the fact that we have quite a low charge or summons rate speaks to the fact that there is this real barrier to reporting that cuts across the board on sexual violence. You know, we all know the reasons why women don't report sexual violence. It's something that I've written about from a general perspective and from a personal perspective. But I think hopefully talking about these issues and giving that space to women to say you will be believed or you deserve to be believed if you allege these crimes is really important. And to recognise that even doctors, even taxi drivers, even politicians, even anyone in any career, in any space where they have access to vulnerable people or to women and girls can choose to commit these crimes. It's not specific to one group of people or one one career path or one segment of society. There was a ban introduced, wasn't there, on mixed sex wards in hospitals. Has that ban been brought into force in practice? And has that got any bearing on these figures? So Andrew Lansley, when he was the Health and Social Care Secretary, introduced a ban on mixed sex accommodation in hospital wards. The government regularly publishes mixed sex accommodation breaches, which are common, partly because the NHS is under a huge amount of pressure. And we know that there's you know, massive issues around beds, there's massive issues around capacity in the NHS. But we found, looked at the mixed sex accommodation breaches published by the government, and we found 36,879 instances between January in 2019 and September 2022. And just so I understand that then, Sean, that means 36,000 occasions when there were impracticed mixed sex wards where there shouldn't have been. Yes. So the mixed sex wards are banned unless there's a really good reason for patient welfare. So what this the issue is, is that we can't say, you know, there's not a cause and effect with sexual violence. It's not like there is a mixed sex ward and that causes sexual violence to happen in hospitals, partly because some of the victims will have been staff members or visitors, partly because some of the victims would have been on the same sex of the perpetrator. But it is a problem for women's safety and for and also for men's dignity. One of the big issues about mixed sex accommodation is you might have men who, you know, from all sorts of backgrounds who don't want to be lying next to a woman on a a separate bed. They might have very complicated medical issues that might leave them feeling embarrassed or undignified to, you know, have these issues happening in front of a woman in the same way that women might not feel comfortable being next to a man because they might have um, concerns about safety or, again, embarrassment, dignity. So it is a, a really important thing to talk about in terms of mixed sex accommodation, not just from a position of vulnerability to sexual violence, but in terms of patient dignity and safety as well. Daisy, Sean's done a great job and you've done a great job in highlighting the concern around these issues. Where do you take your campaign next? Well, I'm going to be exploring every avenue uh, in Parliament to try and raise this. I've already already started on that. Um, I've tried a number of times already to try and secure a debate in Parliament, and I'll continue to to push that angle. I think it is really, really important. I mean, clearly, what the byline research shows is there is a there's an urgent need, right? There's an there's an urgent need to look at what security measures can be put in place to make sure that patients, visitors, and staff are more secure, so we can actually try and prevent this scale of sexual misconduct, abuse, and rape from happening on hospital premises. But there has to be systemic change as well. And as I say, you know, you raise this question about is there any relationship between single sex wards and where these assaults are happening? And the honest answer to that is we have no idea because there isn't any data. It's really not clear whether this is happening, you know, in staff rooms, on hospital wards, in car parks, in lifts. 
we really don't know where it's happening because there isn't that systemic data collection that we need if we're going to tackle this. And you know, the, the Secretary of State himself has described himself as someone who is data driven. He likes looking at data. And therefore, I'm incredibly hopeful that he will agree to my request to actually put in place a framework for the clear and systematic collection of this kind of data right across all NHS and I think social care settings so that we can shine a light on the scale of this problem, get a much clearer picture about where it's happening and between which kind of individuals who are in that hospital setting so we can start to tackle it and make sure that patients really do feel safe. You know, as Sean said, you know, not only do people see hospitals as a place where they should be safe, but of course, people are at their absolutely most vulnerable. And if you are undergoing treatment or you're awaiting an operation or um, you've had some kind of accident that is life changing, you know, quite frankly, you know, reporting sexual misconduct might be so far down your list in terms of trying to hold your life together, trying to work out what this means for your job and your family and your future. Um, and so there's absolutely you know, no wonder that more people probably are not coming forward and we need to make sure that everybody has the confidence to know that if they can't make their complaint right now that they're going to have the ability to do that when they feel medically and mentally fit to do so. Sean, what have the government said to your findings? So obviously as we do our due diligence we submitted our findings to the Department for Health and Social Care who passed it on to NHS England and they gave us a very full response saying that they take all complaints very seriously and that they encourage anyone who has concerns about any form of sexual assault on an NHS site to come forward, report it and seek support. They also said they do not tolerate any form of sexual misconduct, assault, harassment or abuse in any setting. And we are clear that all NHS trusts and organisations must have robust security measures in place to keep everyone who uses our sites safe ensuring immediate action is taken in any cases reported to them. So that's, you know, it's a really reassuring statement. And as Daisy says, this is not about pointing fingers. This is about bringing people together to create real change for vulnerable victims and survivors so that everybody can be confident that they are safe. And if anything happens to them, they will be listened to and believed and protected. Sean, thank you. And congratulations on a great story. Thank you also to Daisy Cooper, the Lib Dems health spokesperson. Now you've had a listen to this, why not check out Byline Supplement, where, as I mentioned earlier, you can hear episodes of this podcast, which sometimes get a first listening on the Byline Supplement. The latest one, the first one, the launch edition, has my conversation with the author and academic Jason Stanley discussing modern-day fascism on both sides of the Atlantic. Head over to bylinesupplement.com. Thanks very much indeed for listening. I'm Adrian Goldberg. This has been... The Byline Times podcast will speak again very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye.